Welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' holy name. I thank you and I praise you for who you are, for all that you've done for us. Lord, I ask that you would grant us the grace of expectant faith for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to uh, help us to honor you by the way that we uh, pray and wait for the coming of your Holy Spirit on Sunday. Lord, I pray that that would be an event that's more than a feast on a calendar remembering a past event, but that it would be a present event in our lives. Lord, that's what I desire. It's what I long for. Please, Jesus, grant us that gift of expectant faith for the coming of your Spirit, the being set set aflame with the fire of your love. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Random reflections on intentional issues. There you go. I don't know how many of these I'm going to get through, but I hopefully I'll, I will, I won't leave you in limbo. By the way, that's one of them. <laughs> one of them is a reflection on limbo. Uh, but uh, before I actually dive in any further, hey, go to this website, chestertonacademyofnotredame.org, chestertonacademyofnotredame.org. It's the classical Catholic school in Spokane, uh, Costco High School. And it's a wonderful school, um, just amazing kids that are there and families. And they have a fundraising concert tonight, uh, tonight at the Boxcar Room in downtown Spokane. And it is, you can still get tickets, but you have to go to, guess what? Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame.org. Uh, the concert is by Eric uh, uh, Jenis. Uh, he, it's a benefit concert, and he's an internationally acclaimed composer, pianist, and in, inspirational speaker. Uh, I believe he's going to be speaking to the kids and performing um, in the afternoon. And then in the evening, the event begins at 545 in the evening, and it'll be done by 830 in the evening at the Boxcar Room in downtown Spokane. And tickets are 20 to $30, and, and it's, it's going to benefit the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame. So a great use of your your dollars. I did interview Eric last week. You can enjoy that interview. If you go to mycatholicfaith.org, you can watch it on YouTube or on Facebook. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but just go to mycatholicfaith.org to listen to the interview if you'd like. Very inspiring uh, man. And it's music that he's composed along with his professional accompany, uh, accompanist, accompanist uh, that will be there, uh, that will be there, and including him telling some amazing stories of faith, especially about setting the prisoners free. So please, please consider that if you're in the area. I'd love to see you there. Okay, uh, random reflections on intentional issues. Let me start with this random reflection. The census fidei of the census fidelium. What in the world am I talking about? <laughs> One of the themes that you'll see in the Catholic tradition is this idea that the sense of faith, like the, there's this sensitivity that comes with a vital faith that helps you discern what it is you ought to do, okay? That's the sensus fidei, the sense of faith, the sensitivity that faith brings, the sensitivity that the light of faith brings to our lives that can help us get clarity, help us to distinguish what we ought to do in a particular moment. Now, I used another phrase, sensus fidelium. That's the sense of the faithful, the sensitivity of the faithful ones of God. And what the church says is that we ought to pay attention to the sensus fidei, the sensus fidei, the, the, the sense of faith of the faithful. So that if you if you look at the faithful and you see, you notice that something's happening, then you ought to pay attention to it. 
and in paying attention to it, that might give you some guidance about what you ought to do. Okay, what am I talking about? I'm talking about mass. And I'm talking about a phenomenon that I'm seeing happen at mass. And, and here I'm talking about the Novus Ordo mass, the mass in English, the mass that the great, great, great majority of you attend to. You'll notice a phenomenon that is striking. And it's striking for a particular reason. It's coming from the faithful. It's not something that is being directed by the priests. It's not a directive coming from the bishop. But you're seeing the sense of the faithful, the sensitivity of the faithful that is manifesting itself at Mass. And in particular, it's related to this theme of reverence and how the faithful are expressing this sense of reverence at Mass. And I want to give you several of these phenomena, these things that are showing up at Mass among the faithful, that if we pay attention to it, might be a, a guiding point to what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today. And there's a way in which the faithful will then be actually prompting, nudging, uh, uh, kind of waving their arms, if you will, a spiritual waving of the arms to the to the to the our spiritual fathers, the priests and the bishops, to say, hmm, maybe there's something here we ought to pay attention to and then take action on. And it's the following: it's at a typical mass in in pretty much every church I go to when I'm out and about and happen to be at uh, you know a mass that is again not the traditional Latin mass but the Novus Ordo, the Mass in English, is that you'll have more faithful, you'll have faithful like uh, men and women dressed um, to a uh, in their Sunday best. The way that we talk about it in the Carmen home is you dress for a wedding. Like going to Mass, you dress for a wedding. It is the wedding feast of the Lamb, but you dress for a wedding. And you all know this. If you're going to go to a wedding, what do you do? You dress in a certain way. You dress up. You don't dress in your normal garb. And so there is an expectation that you elevate the manner of your dress when you go to Mass because it's a sacred activity, the sacred liturgy. And so in the sacred liturgy, you have a need to correspond to what's happening. And so I'm seeing more of the faithful dress in a way that is connected to the act that they're participating in. So for men, I see more men dressing in shirts, ties, and, and or suit jackets. That becomes more common and even more of a standard. And, and here's the thing. I, I don't hear... I don't think I've ever heard a homily uh, at a Novus Ordo Mass that says, men, you ought to be wearing slacks and shoes and a button collared shirt with uh, a jacket. Do not hear that. But I'm seeing it. Census fide of the census fidelium. It's the sense of faith of the faithful, the sensitivity that is manifesting itself. And the women, you're seeing women dressed in modest dresses, and veiling, wearing a veil. And you see these women veiling, and why are they doing this? There's this sense of a proper way to show up, to comport oneself at Mass. And, and here's the thing. I, again, I've never heard a homily, <laughs> I've never heard a homily at a Novus Ordo Mass on the meaning of veiling in the liturgical space, during a liturgical event. Like, why would women wear veils? Is it to show that they're subordinate? No. Take a look at what is veiled in a church. What do you put a covering over in a church? Well, the altar, the tabernacle, the chalice. How about the priests and the ministers that are there serving as altar servers. They're all veiled. You know, women just wear a veil over their head. Priests are wearing a veil. They're, wearing, they're veiling their whole body in the vestment that is 
theirs when they're serving at the altar. You veil that you veil what is holy. You provide a proper covering over that which is holy. And so there's a distinct holiness just literally to be a woman. Wow. It's powerful stuff. Okay. Uh, in addition to that, I'm noticing what's showing up is that increasingly people are receiving communion on the tongue. Again, there's not an instruction, never heard it from a homily that said, hey, when you're coming forward for communion, you really ought to be praying and discerning the most reverent way to most appropriately receive Jesus as he comes to you in Holy Communion. You ought to find the most reverent expression of that as possible. And receiving on the tongue is a beautiful, powerful, appropriate way to do that. No, you don't never hear that, but people are doing it increasingly, increasingly. And in addition to that, even, amazingly, kneeling when they go before the priest. They literally get down on one or two knees and receive communion not only on the tongue, but in a kneeling posture. Which, again, uh, I'll, can I stop saying it? It's not taught, it's not promoted. It's not advanced, and yet it's happening. Oh, I, I can take that back. I did acknowledge uh, it was one of the things that was like a wow was at the Cathedral of Our Lady of Lords. Uh, sometime in the past, I don't know, in the past year anyway, so it's six to eight months, maybe a year, uh, they uh, started to put a kneeler down at the front of the communion line so those who would want to receive would receive in a kneeling posture. And they, they bring out a kneeler in order to make that uh, acceptable and accessible and make it comfortable, if you will, for those for whom it might be a physical challenge. And just notice what's showing up. There is a heightened awareness a sensitivity of, of the faithful connected to their faith that at the sacred liturgy, a holy action is occurring, and I ought to pay attention to the manner in which I'm approaching the reception of Jesus Christ. Oh, and there's one other last element to that, and that is that there are the a number of the laity, the faithful, who are like getting out of the pew and the section of the church where they are at, and they actually walk around the church in order to get in the communion line to receive communion from the priest. And instead of from a Eucharistic minister. And again, people aren't teaching this, but there's this awakening there's this awakening that is saying, if I have a sensitivity to it, and my faith is prompting this in me, I'm going to take an action that is appropriate to what it is I feel convicted by. And so you see people that are dressed more reverently, coming to Mass, when it comes time for Holy Communion, they come around, they find the line, the communion line the priest is giving, they come forward, they kneel, and they receive on the tongue. It's kind of cool because it is, it's like a movement of the Holy Spirit. There's no like website that's saying, go do this, make a prophetic statement. No, it's just spreading. It's spreading. It's spreading. And I would even add two other little ones. The first is, I'm also noticing that there are laity that are kneeling directly on the floor. Not kneeling on kneelers, but actually kneeling on the floor. Uh, and and the, Not that there are not kneelers, there are kneelers there, but they want to express an even, again, heightened sense of the sacredness of this, and I'm going to offer up the comfort of a kneeler for the focused reflection of kneeling on the floor. And then the last thing is, after the reception of Holy Communion, taking more significant time for thanksgiving after communion, of 
prayerful kneeling uh, for more extended time after receiving Holy Communion. Well, there's my first random reflection on, I think, a very intentional issue. Back in a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to Sun Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. So I just offered my first random reflection on an intentional issue. And, and to summarize it, it's, and, and there's a reason why I'm doing this. Uh, to summarize it, there's this sense of that the, the laity, without being taught or having it be promoted as some kind of program or some kind of try this for four weeks, like Exodus, do this for 90 days and then see what happens. No, this is, this is the stirring of the faith of the faithful and their attempts to live their faith more faithfully. There you go. And what I love about it is, it is, to my own estimation, to my own discernment, it is a way in which the Lord is sending a signal to priests and bishops that the decisions made 40, almost 50 years ago, 45 years ago, to have things like Extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, receiving communion in the hand, um, and um, getting away with the uh, moving away from the communion rail, um, focusing more on the community after the reception of Holy Communion um, by standing rather than kneeling. That these things, these experiments, maybe weren't having the spiritual fruits that were intended when they were attempted, when they were implemented, and that if those things aren't working to actually foster faith, that the faithful are not going to always just wait for the priests and the bishops to put forward a corrective and say, hey, everyone, we're noticing that the spirit of reverence in this liturgical environment uh, is not all that it ought to be. And so we're going to shift back. We're going to recover some things that we've lost. And let's see how that goes. Let's see if that, it's a, no, that's not the way it's working. <laughs> and and you know what? There's an important lesson here. The bishop is not responsible for your salvation. The bishop is not responsible for your becoming a saint. The bishop, in the end, is not responsible for your fulfilling of your God-given mission. Now, the bishop and his priests working in communion with him have a God-given role that is absolutely critical to govern, teach, and sanctify us. And you know what? The degree to which they faithfully become saints and fulfill their God-given mission as bishops and priests, that is on them. And we can pray for them, and we can do penance for them, and we can support them and encourage them and, and speak messages back to them to ask them to be accountable. But at the end of the day, your faith, your family's faith, is in your hands far more than it's in the hands of your priest and your bishop. And your attempts to grow in holiness and to fulfill your God-given mission, your call to glorify God with your whole life, it is on you way before it is on your priest or your bishop. And so this theme of the census fide and the census fidelium, the sense of faith of the faithful, means that each of us has that personal relationship with the Holy Spirit not apart from the institutional church, not separated from the institutional church, not divergent from the institutional church, but in communion with the institutional church. 
but there are dimensions that are in the storehouse of the institutional church that might not always be brought out to us from her bishops and priests. And so we have to be engaged and active ourselves. We should not expect them to do all the heavy lifting. That moment in church history where the culture and the wider society was supportive of our Catholic faith is mostly gone, in large measure gone, and in increasing measure, forcefully, demonically coming after us and coming after our children. And we cannot wait passively by thinking that everything's just going to be okay and the bishops and priests and, and those will take care of it that are sort of, you know, they've got those more public roles. You wait for that, your family's going to get slaughtered. The slaughter of the innocence of your kids. It is happening until you prove to me it's not. The loss of your kids' Catholic faith will happen unless you prove to me that it doesn't. It takes a heroic effort to raise an ordinary believer. It takes a heroic effort from you and from me to raise our kids or to influence our kids and their kids so that they will remain Catholic. That's just pure statistics, but also plays itself out really unquestioningly. No one has, no one says to me, Tom, you know, you're just wrong on that. Uh, it is, it's really not that difficult to raise kids in this environment today uh, to be fervent Catholics who flourish in their faith and feel just wonderfully active and alive in their faith and in the society that they're walking through day to day and the school that they're going to day to day. It's a battle. It's a battle. And it's going to take a heroic effort on our part. So we need the stirring of the Holy Spirit. We need the stirring of the Holy Spirit in our lives if we're going to fulfill God's call. This brings me to my second random reflection on intentional issues. So my second random reflection on intentional issues is about limbo. I don't want to leave you in limbo. What is limbo, right? So limbo was a theological theory not the teaching of the church. It was a theological theory that arose in the Middle Ages, and it was a way of addressing a theological, uh, not a conundrum, a theological uh, uh, issue connected to original sin, personal sin, and our ultimate destiny. Right? So our ultimate destiny, we most naturally, quickly, easily say is what? You look at the scriptures, heaven and hell. And I mean, that's the biggest thing of all, right? Where do you end up? And here's the thing. You can get a lot of things wrong. You don't want to get that one wrong, right? <laughs> that's another issue. But you don't want to get that one wrong, brothers and sisters. You can get a lot of things wrong. Like I got wrong the fact that the Celtics were going to beat the Miami Heat in the NBA semifinals right? The Eastern Conference Championship. I just got that wrong. Now, it's only 3 nothing right now, but I'm pretty much convinced that that ship has sailed and I was wrong. <laughs> Not a big deal. I'll move on. I don't want to get wrong my salvation or the salvation of my kids or my spouse, or guess what? You either and all your loved ones. And every, uh, I actually have jumped onto my third reflection. Let me come back to limbo. I don't want to leave you in limbo about limbo. <laughs> so what was the theological conundrum, the, the challenging point? Well, if heaven and hell are the ultimate uh, destinations, well, who ends up in hell? Well, those who, uh, those who are um, guilty of mortal sin. And so those who have committed some personal sin um, is what it takes to end up in hell. You know, you basically have to betray the Lord in your action and to do so, uh, to do so in a way that was um, uh, serious. That, you know, you've committed a serious crime against God, a mortal sin. Okay, um, well, what's it take to get to heaven? Well, to get to heaven requires this 
repent and be baptized. Oh, okay. It takes the sacrament of salvation. So those who are baptized are those who receive the gift of salvation, meaning that they become associated, they become participants in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So that what Jesus underwent in his passion and death, his descent among the dead, his resurrection from the dead, and then his uh, return to the Father in, in the ascension, he offers us a share in that. He offers us a way out of death. He offers us a way out of the fallen condition of the world as a result of original sin. Right? We get this. And so it's baptism that makes us members of the church, transforms us into children of God, and opens for us the, uh, the, the gates of heaven. And so we share in the life of heaven. So in order to arrive at heaven— it takes baptism, and in order to uh, in membership in the church, that because that's that's how we become associated with Jesus Christ. But in order to end up in hell, it takes personal sin, serious sin, um, in order to have us be condemned. Well, the conundrum is, what happens to babies that are not baptized? So babies that are not baptized are well, are not uh, ha- have not done anything to have them deserve hell. And yet, because they are marked by original sin, they are not a, they don't have access to heaven. They're not baptized. And so limbo was this place where unbaptized infants went who did not achieve the age of reason and therefore had no capacity to commit a personal sin but neither did they receive the gift of salvation, the gift that it's a gift that comes through participation in the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ and membership of the church, salvation. And so neither did they deserve heaven or have heaven opened up to them. So they're literally in limbo. So limbo was a place of pure, natural happiness. It was a place where they would go and they would be happy. They would be happy with the happiness that belongs to being a human being. That's not a bad thing, right? Not a bad thing. It's not the joy that comes from sharing in divine life, right? Sharing in divinity itself, the very divine nature of God. And guess what? We have a forte. Uh, sorry, that, this is where I'm headed with this. This intentional, why this is a, an intentional issue. This random reflection is, I think we, we tend to think of ourselves as destined for limbo rather than destined for heaven. We tend to think that our life, when it's over, is going to be just a better kind of purified form of our life on earth. We tend to think of heaven, honestly, my sense is, more like the theologians in the Middle Ages would have discussed limbo, a place of natural happiness, and when we think about, oh, what's life in heaven going to be like? We tend to think of sort of nat- things that make us naturally happy. Rather than the elevated state of being, the new creation status that is ours as children of God, where we cry out, Abba, Father. And we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father, with the Spirit of the Son the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us in in this intimate circumincessio, co-interpenetration with this communion, this profound intimate union of our spirit, the core of our being, with the spirit of Jesus, we are destined, not destined, we even now have a foretaste, have a share in the peace of heaven, the joy of heaven, the freedom of heaven, the the life of heaven, and we're destined to. And the goal is on earth as it is in heaven. We are not called to live a limbo life on earth and think of heaven as a limbo life after death. No, we are called to manifest on earth 
an elevated life, the life of heaven, even here and now. That's what we have been gifted to share. That is what we have had poured into our hearts to radiate. This is our call. We are not Reformed Protestants. We are not Calvinists. We believe in sanctification. We believe in participation even here and now in God's own divine life. We radiate divine life into this world. My brothers and sisters, we, Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus Christ, we who are baptized and we Catholics who are confirmed and share in that life of Pentecost, we must show the world something greater, higher, more profound than the world can offer. Because if we think that we are going to attract people to the church, if the only thing we're offering them is a form of natural happiness, we will lose. Because what we offer them through the rituals and the rules, the moral standards and the way of life of a Christian does not appear, feel, or look happier than what the world offers in the, uh, the pleasures and the experiences of this world. It's only when we go deeper and beyond and say, it might look hard, but it is so much more life-giving. Come and see. And what washes over them is a peace they can't understand, a joy they can't make sense of, a fullness to overflowing that is beyond their imagination, a sense of life and freedom that they long for. That is what we offer them, but that only comes through a rich relationship with the Holy Spirit. We are desperately in need of Pentecost. We are not in limbo. Welcome back to Sunset. This is Tom Kern. I'm offering some random reflections on intentional issues. And the second issue I just was sharing about was it just kind of dawned on me that too many of us talk like we expect heaven to be more like limbo than it does like heaven. And that as a result of that, we don't really experience our own following of Jesus much like heaven. Not at all. <laughs> we don't. We, we, we actually mimic the idea of limbo as natural happiness as the thing that we strive for. We tend to strive for comfort and uh, uh, pleasure and ease and the riches that this world offers. And, uh, and we pursue things that are, again, seeming like limbo things, things that would make you naturally happy. Fame, power, and wealth, right? And so we can't settle for that. Okay, so there's a way out. Here's my third random reflection on an intentional issue. And it's this. Uh, If I said that the first one, my first one was what? My first one was that the sense of the faith is uh, shown by the sense of the faithful, And one of my senses is that it takes a heroic effort to raise an ordinary Christian. Then my second one is, we're made more than for a limbo life here on earth. We're made to show the life of heaven here on earth. My third one is going to be, how does that actually work itself out in our lives? How do we actually get there? Do you want to manifest the life of heaven here on earth? Well, I'm going to tell you how to manifest the life of heaven here on earth. And that's by going through hell. Yeah, you heard me right. The way that you are going to manifest heaven on earth is by following the path of Jesus. And that was a path from Holy Thursday through Good Friday to Holy Saturday. We want to jump over that. We want to go from Holy Thursday to Easter Sunday. We want to go from slavery in Egypt right to the promised land. We want to skip over the 40 years in the desert. We don't want to be stripped down. We don't want to go through the fire. We want to get to the resurrection. We just don't want to go through hell. But I'm here to witness to you that the very thing that is 
even hellish in our lives. The very trials, traumatizing difficulties, brokennesses that we are faced with in our lives, those very things are the things that God will often use to bring about the greatest blessings that our lives have ever known. The heavenly riches that the Lord wants to offer to us, sorry, is offering to us. He offers us through the dark road, the road through the darkness. But but that means it's the road in the darkness. But it's through the darkness to come out to the light. Now, why? Well, it's the path that Jesus took, right? But, But why? Why, why, why? Well, oftentimes it's by going through that fire, the fire of the situations, trials, and difficulties that leave us powerless, that leave us overwhelmed, that leave us in a point of desperation, that what happens? We utterly stop relying on ourselves. We utterly turn to God in a purified manner, in a manner that says, that has no hint of anything other than help. I need a Savior. I need someone who's bigger than this. I need a Lord. I need a good shepherd because I am being torn to pieces. My family is being torn to pieces. And when you have the good shepherd be your Lord and your Savior, and he shepherds you through hell, and you come out that other side, you will gleam with the glory of resurrection. And no one who hasn't gone through it will get it. The only way that you'll get it is by going through it. People can hear the story. People can look. They can can benefit from the the blessing of the peace that you now radiate, the the confidence in which you stand about what's important in life. They'll, They'll be moved by the conviction that you bring when you talk about things. Most of all, they will feel a sense that they're not alone. When you share your story, they'll sense compassion and solidarity. They'll realize that someone has gone through this suffering. I'm not alone, and I'll get through this. That testimony moves me, and now I'll move through it. And so if you truly desire to manifest what God intends for you to manifest on earth, which is something of the divine life of heavenly resurrection here and now, the joy, the peace, the freedom, the life, the flourishing, the joy, the the freedom, the communion, all of those good things, get ready to go through hell. I don't desire that for you, but I do desire for you to come through to resurrection. I'm not saying it's not scary. In fact, you look at the lives of the saints, Mother Teresa, great example. Mother Teresa's book, Come Be My Light. Right? Come Be My Light. She tells the story. I, I, I can only summarize it here. I'm just going to summarize it. But it was this. Mother Teresa was invited by the Lord in, in this way. It was, I'm asking you to allow me to use your yes to take you into the world's no. I'm going to use your yes to me to draw you into the world's no. I'm going to use the light that I shine on you to say, come and allow me to bring you into the world's darkness. And so, Why? Why would the Lord do that? Why wouldn't the Lord let her stay in the light and stay in the yes and then go to people who are experiencing the darkness of the world's no? Well, there was no sympathy. There was no compassion. There was no solidarity. There was no, this person gets me. She she doesn't get me. She's, She's like standing way up high on this pedestal and she's reaching her hand down and she is somehow trying to pull me up and out. No, 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 no. 
No, when when she went out to the to the the dying on the streets who had been rejected and abandoned by the world, the despised ones, those that were cursed, uh, the the unloved and the unlovables, she would go to them and she would I, I will bring you love. I will love the ones who are unlovable. I would touch those who were untouchable, and in doing so, they would look her in the eyes and they sensed the fact that. Their darkness, their isolation, their, their, the world's no at them was not foreign to her. Because the Lord took her, yes, and brought her into a dark night that lasted 50 years. 50 years of no sensible consolation, apart from a, a few months uh, early on. There was about 50 years of dark night. A dark night of the spirit. And in that, in that no, she still loved. In that no, she still believed. In that no that got darker and darker, that got stronger and stronger, she said, yes, I love. Yes, you are my light. In the midst of darkness, you are my light. And so when people met her, what did they meet? Did they meet someone in whom they found a sympathetic soul that, that also knew a no, or did they sense God's light? The answer is yes. God used that no to be a conduit to bring his yes. God used her, the darkness that she was in to be a doorway for her to shine a brighter light into their lives. She didn't, well, she wasn't doing it from the light. She was doing it from that place of darkness. The Lord brought her into such an intimate union with him that he could have her be in darkness and be in the experience of a no. And she was only there because of the light of the yes that she had said. Are you tracking with me? That's why the light of God shone so greatly through her. It wasn't for her benefit. It was for everyone else. And so we, my brothers and sisters, ought not to be afraid when our world starts crumbling, when our situations become more desperate, when we experience more suffering in our own following of the Lord. I'm not saying it's going to get easier right away. It might get harder. It might get harder for years. It might stay broken in for a dark, long period of time. But I'm telling you, you keep coming to the Lord in your desperation, and you'll, even if you don't experience it, you'll become a conduit for the brilliance, the radiance of God's glory to the benefit of those around you. You will get through hell to get to heaven. And those things that you might have identified as the worst trials and tribulations of your life, they're still that but they become the things that were the conduits of God's greatest blessings for you. That's how we get there. That's my third random reflection on intentional issues. Back in a minute with my fourth. Hey, welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. So, uh, random reflections on intentional issues. Hey, one more time. Uh, Eric Jenis is going to be speaking at the Boxcar Room, if it's speaking, performing at the Boxcar Room, but also uh, giving inspirational uh, messages woven into his performance uh, at the Boxcar Room. It's tonight. It starts at 545. Concert begins at 630. It goes until 830 in the evening. And if you're not remembering any of this, remember, it's at the chest. It's supporting the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame. You can always call them. If you don't remember, Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame dot org. You can go and you can call their office and ask them for tickets and to answer questions. And by the way, uh, the tickets, 20 to $30, does have a complimentary drink, and there are hors d'oeuvres that will be served. You can call the Chesterton Academy at 509-242-3750. 509-242-3750. If you call, let them know I told you to call. 
to get tickets for tonight, Eric Jenis, remember he's an incredible composer, pianist. There'll be an accompanying violinist and a cellist and a, and a singer, a soloist. Um, and you'll enjoy this music and this testimony greatly. I had a wonderful opportunity to interview him. Very inspiring guy. Talk about a guy who ministers out of that union, that communion that he has with the Lord and using the gifts God's given him. Very powerful. So go enjoy a wonderful evening. Be inspired and support the important mission of the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame. And again, that's at 509 242-3750, 2420750 uh, again the event is at the boxcar room Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame fundraising event okay um, back to the program so I am offering you some random reflections on these intentional issues and so um, this is I've got a couple of quick ones I, I want to get through um, there is there's some controversies that are happening these days um, between, goodness, how do I call it, uh, between, between folks who ought to be linking arms against a common enemy, and instead, let's call it just sort of church infighting. And it's a real sadness because, in my own estimation, a lot of what drives this infighting is... Um, worldly goals, money, fame, and power or influence. The internet has allowed platforms, whether they are um, YouTube channels or podcasts or um, online ministries that offer uh, uh, lots of um, opportunities to to, uh, become educated in the faith or to uh, to get religious items that will encourage you in faith. Uh, there, is, there is a whole realm of opportunity that just wasn't there even, you know, five, six years ago. Uh, but it's, it's now available, and that is making money online, doing ministry stuff. And so, sadly... There are internet personalities, those that have like been able to sort of sidestep and, and go around the more traditional ways that um, church apostolates and ministries have grown um, through working with dioceses and conferences out in the real world. When stuff goes online, you have so many of these ministries, apostolates, and individuals who vie for attention using clickbait, using uh, sensationalized titles that uh, are, are such exaggerations that they try to pull people in and, and, and pull people into my thing rather than your thing. And, and it leads to a lot of un, unworthy use of time, energy, and money. And boy, it's so easy to just rationalize away. Why do we do that? Why, why would I do that? And the answer was, they, well, they need to take care of their families or they, their message deserves a wider hearing. So they'll use unworthy means to grow a, to accomplish a worthy mission. And the reason why this is so sad is that it weakens our attention and our energy against really demonic intrusions into the the modern world that are just destroying kids' lives and families. And the most dominant and prominent among them is the gender ideology as it's expressed in LGBTQ. Uh, do I have to add in other letters now and plus signs? Uh, LGBTQ plus uh, movement. It's a movement and it's a demonic movement. And it is destroying lives. It is destroying families. And when, when I think about the fact that it takes a heroic effort to raise an ordinary believing Catholic today, it's getting harder day by day, week by week, month by month, because there are not enough heroic men, 
I'm just going to stop there. There are not enough heroic men willing to take one for the team. There are not enough heroic men willing to put their reputation on the line, their influence on the line, maybe their jobs on the line. Not even not even enough to put their own kids' safety on the line, not to mention other kids' safety and well-being. And they succumb to passivity. They they succumb to effeminacy, this unwillingness to do the difficult good because it involves suffering, because it involves going to extraordinary efforts to attain a good that we ought to fight for. And we still are so passive in the face of the introduction of policies and laws into school systems with educational curriculum, with policies around how kids are naming themselves with pronouns, how they are being uh, living in a state like Washington where if kids are, are, are wanting to move in a direction that is going to be completely unhealthy for them, that their parents can be kept in the dark. And so now all of a sudden parents are the enemy of their kids if their kids are having washed over them and sewn into them seductive, demonic lies that are pervasive and that they will attack you if you attempt to stand against them. And so we sit back and do nothing. It is so disturbing. And why we won't stand up for the truth of God entrusted to us why we won't battle for that truth, for the good of the society that we're living in. Forget the whole society. How about our own community? God bless us if we can't even stand up in our own Catholic churches and Catholic schools against, against policies that lead kids into self-harming, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, uh, into pathways of, of medicating and, and, and hormone treatments and even surgeries that are destructive of their lives, where are the voices of men to speak up, speak the truth, come against these lies for the sake of the innocence of kids? I, you know, I, this, isn't, this isn't so much a random reflection on my part, because it's a reflection that I, I cry out regularly. And it's one of the reasons why we moved away from a toxic part of our state that is increasingly inundating kids with these demonic lies that are destroying lives. And I guess this is my last word to you men. Man up. And if man up means uproot your family and move for the sake of your kids' mental, psychological, spiritual well-being, the way that they see the world and live in the world, then you know what? I don't care if you lose your job. I mean, of course I care. But what I'm saying is, uh, why would you allow that evil to occur for the sake of a job when the Lord will provide? You got to be wise. You got to be courageous. You got to be willing to to take a serious action. And if you feel stuck, call me up. Go to my website, mycatholicfaith.org. You email me. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. I will coach you. I will give you insight. I will. I'll help you for free. I just want to help you. You do what you need to do to help you protect your kids, lead your kids, and guide your kids. I'm in mycatholicfaith.org. You reach out to me and say, Tom, I need help. I got to figure this out. I don't know what to do. That is, that wasn't very random. That was very intentional. I do not want to see your kids destroyed. And I know you don't either. So take action. God bless you.